Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network in British Studies. I'm Tyler Yank, a co-host of the channel. And today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Lisa Zay Winters, Associate Professor in African-American Studies and English at Wayne State University. We're here to discuss her new book, The Mulata Concubine, Terror, Intimacy, Freedom, and Desire in the Black Transatlantic, which was published in 2016 by the University of Georgia Press. Lisa, welcome to the show. Hi, Tyler. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on the show. I'm really excited about this. Wonderful. Um, I wonder, Lisa, if you could begin by saying a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So as you said, I'm an associate professor in English and African American Studies at Wayne State. And um, actually, all of my degrees, my BA, MA, and PhD are in African-American studies and um, for the PhD with a specialization in African diaspora studies at University of California, Berkeley. So I come from um, a very interdisciplinary background and um, I was lucky enough to have a real kind of community of mentors and professors and um, classmates that are like, you know, very much family, but also an intellectual family to me in terms of how I think about my work. So um, that I think is that. (laughs) Wonderful. Um, I guess the first question I have is to do with the cover of your book. And I wanted to draw everyone's attention to the image that you have on the front of the book. Um, Hopefully our readers can see the cover page just above the link to this interview. So it depicts a woman seated, dressed very elegantly, Um, Could you tell us a little bit about this image, why you chose it, and what it showcases? Yeah, I mean, this image is from an 1853 um, atlas that accompanies kind of an encyclopedia by um, um, a man named um, David Voila, who was a Senegalese priest, and his mother was actually a senior. And so this image depicts a senior who are like a celebrated class of um, women, part of the... um, the, a class called um, habitants or in, the inhabitants of um, uh, St. Louis and Goree Islands in 
Senegal, and these were women that were famous for their um, relationships, their kind of marriages in the mode of the country to um, to European men, and they really kind of forged business ties and developed developed you know a wealth base um, in these two Atlantic ports and. The reason that I wanted the image really was to kind of work in juxtaposition or even kind of contestation with the title of my work because I use a lot of concubine and that phrase very deliberately and a little bit, um, I think, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, you know, I, a, a little bit slightly polemically, yeah. um, but really to kind of understand all of the tension that's inherent in there. But one of the questions and one of the things that um, I really wanted to work through in the book is kind of how and when we frame um, women of African descent who engage in sexual relationships and extra legal marriages with white European men, how and when do we name them mulatta and the ways in which naming them mulatta doesn't always align with kind of their visual appearance. And so one of the questions for me is kind of what's at stake there. Um, I also really appreciate, you know, um, this image in terms of kind of this juxtaposition between the senior who is dressed in very distinctive um, garb that is very specific to the senior. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of a melange of European and Wolof um, dress practices, but she's seated inside um that, you know, interior that looks like it could be someplace in France as opposed to in a village um, on the island of Gorée or uh, San Luis. So I'm really interested in kind of that tension and what and the um, work that that image does, um, both in Voila's Atlas, which is kind of in, um, in contemporary kind of understandings of diaspora and blackness and gender, because this is also an image that you can pretty much kind of, it just circulates everywhere on the web. So... That's, that's where it's coming with that So can I ask, um, so this concept then of the mulatto concubine, how did you come to write about it? Was there a set of documents you found in grad school or was it something that have been, you know, this concept has been percolating through your work on diaspora studies? How did you come to it? Yeah, um, the way I came to it, I feel like it was just the happiest accident and one of the like real, real pleasures of doing um, you know, research, right? Because I actually came to graduate school thinking that I was going to work on 20th century um, African, Caribbean, and African-American literature. And I was initially, I mean, I came to graduate school interested in representations of um, mixed-raced women, and I was going to kind of build off of my senior honors thesis where I looked at um, Michelle Cliffs Aubing and Ella Larson's quicksand and Bessie heads a question of power. And I was really trying to think through like the ways in which the figure of mixed race women is always kind of attached to, um, you know, madness and, um, um, and this kind of, um, you know, these, a kind of embracing and, and resisting of this notion of the tragic yeah. as like a literary figure. And so that's where I was, I, I came, you know, to grad school thinking I wanted to really, think through the very specific historical context for, for um, 
you know, across diaspora for this figure that seems to travel. Um, and at once it's like, seems really consistent, but at the same time is really different. Um, precisely because of her, her the, the distinct historical context, yeah. but I was kind of struggling with it. And I was sitting in my, um, advisor's office, Veve Clark, um, and I was just talking through, and she was just like the most amazing mentor and advisor because she had that really wonderful gift of being able to kind of tell what you mm-hmm. were thinking and like recast it to you in ways that were really coherent, right? Yeah. <laughs> and made sense. Um, and so I was sitting there just kind of talking, and she just like jumped up and she grabs this. Um, there's these little you're probably familiar with them, um, hatchet guides, which are these like little blue tour books. Yeah. Um, that were really popular, I think, in the 70s. Um, and she, she grabs them for Senegal. And, um, I mean, Veve was like a polyglot. She was, um, she, she, she can see, you know, she, she comes up with the term um, Marasa consciousness and also elaborates a series diaspora literacy. And she, she just lived it. So she was, um, so she had gone to Senegal as a graduate student to, um, in part to study Wolof. And so she grabs this book and in this book, there's like this short passage and the book is in mm-hmm. French. Um, and there's this so- short passage, she just opens it and there's this short passage that describes the signors and it describes them as mulattresses, which was, oh, that was kind of the moment that I was like, oh, this is odd because it was from 1970. So it's outside of an 18th century context. Like the, the, the text of the guidebook, right? So the guidebook wasn't quoting an 18th century passage. This was like a 1970 description of a historical group of women. Um, and so it describes specifically as mulatres as opposed to like Matisse, for mm-hmm. example. Um, and it was just one of those moments for me where I was just like, I really kind of confronted my, uh, kind of my, my bias, I think, in terms of thinking it, about diaspora and my very U.S. centric ideas about thinking about diaspora because I had never even kind of thought about mixed race women in a pre-colonial African context. Like I had never even thought about that. And so to see that term and it's such a specific term and with like all kinds of like vexed weight and around, you know, ideas about sexuality and race and gender and to see it in that guidebook, I was just like, oh, I need to find out more, like, what is this? And so that, that is what started my, um, my um, kind of journey from thinking I was going to work and specialize in 20th century, you know, contemporary um, literature to just kind of, I kept going backwards and backwards because I, I just wanted to find where this was coming from, where did these women come from? Um, and the other thing that struck me, like, as I started reading about the seniors, um, and again, like, you know, research is so, there's, it depends so much on serendipity yeah. sometimes. And I actually had a book from undergrad. I have no idea how I came into um, possession of this book, but um, other than that, I was just interested in African history Um like very, you know, as vaguely as an undergrad can be interested in African um, history. And, but it was women and I think it was like, I forget the title of the book, but it was an anthology or an edited collection um, on women in, in Africa. And there was an essay on the seniors in that. So it had this, this book in my hands the whole time. Um, 
And I was really struck, like reading about this, as I was reading about the seniors and started seeing, you know, these descriptions, I was like, oh my gosh, they're, the descriptions of the seniors really remind me really in visceral ways of like descriptions of Ezuli, the Haitian um, Lua. And so that's when I started really kind of thinking about, okay, wait a second. And I I remember having that moment in Veve's office. I was like, oh my gosh, is Ezuli the seniors? And, um, and that's not where I ended, but that's where I began. I was like, okay, what, what's going on here in terms of this really repetition depiction of the figure, the mulata that I thought was very kind of us centric. And it Mm -hmm. is. and, And really, um, you know, and especially in terms of kind of 19th century literature, but but in terms of kind of like this repetitious um, image of the mulatta across um, celebrated um, Atlantic ports, because that was the other thing that struck me. So, right, so I look at um, Gore and uh, San Luis, and then I'm um, Colonial Saint Domingue and Haiti in terms of Ezeli, and then my other site is mm-hmm. New Orleans. So I'm also kind of struck by the celeb, like the celebrity status of the figure. Um, so that's how I came to this this project. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, and then kind of bringing it back to how you just completed your. Um, how you completed this idea and came to work on these three sites. Could you say a little bit about that archival process? So how did you piece together these three locations of Senegal, New Orleans, and Haiti? Oh, wow. Um, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I, it's okay if you don't have a complete yeah, answer no, for exactly I, how, but. I mean, I'm definitely of the, like, let me follow breadcrumbs type of researcher, as opposed to, I know what I'm, looking for um and I'm going to go find it um and I think that's in part because even though this book is not I mean I only have like one real literary text that I look at you know I my even though my training is in African um American studies I've focused primarily primarily on on literature and literary analysis uh, and always within a historical context. But so I've never like as an undergrad, I never went to an archive, for mm-hmm. example. Um, and so that wasn't part of my, you know, coming in to graduate school thinking I'm doing 20th century um, uh, literature. I'm not thinking like, Oh, I need to go into an archive per se. And so part of it was just kind of trying to find out um, what was in the archive. So, you know, reading secondary works that were, you know, that would repeatedly cite certain documents or um, certain unpublished manuscripts and um, wanting to go to find um, if there were other kind of gems or treasures in the archive, right? Like in those same documents. And so that was part of it. And again, you know, this is where I just feel like it's never a solitary or individual kind of project or experience. So I was still thinking, I mean, even as I like was really intrigued by the seniors, um, my, um, French is like not great. Like I can read it well now because of the work of the book, but I had like stopped taking French in undergrad and, and, and so I wasn't really enthusiastic about reading in French. So I was still trying to think about like an Anglophone, um, project. And I was still thinking about like 19th century African-American literature and, um, a really good friend of mine, Sarah Johnson, um, who's, um, her first book is on, um, on, um, um, it's called Fear of French Negroes. And so she looks at, um, the influence of, um, the Haitian revolution across the 18th and 19th century, um, 
Caribbean, but I was talking to her and um, about actually Pauline Hopkins, because I was still like, I'm going to look at representations of the figures a lot in 19th century. So I was like, okay, the seniors took me back, but I still want to do an Anglophone project. And, um, and I was talking to her and she was like, well, what about like that visual image of Sappho? And then we started talking. She's like, and then there's this image of Marie Laveau, like this painting of Marie Laveau. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I, because I was, I should back up a little bit because even though I was, really still trying to do an Anglophone project, my questions were really about kind of the figure of the mulatta as like a fantastic figure, like as as something that's a figure that is marvelous and fantastic and kind of supernatural and how 19th century authors um, look at that. And so that's how Marie Laveau came into the picture and also noticing that in 19th century um, African-American literature, the figure of the mulatta almost in the, inevitably either came through or went to New Orleans, right? So New Orleans is this really important imaginative site um, for thinking through the figure of the mulatta in, in the U.S. So that's how, that's how New Orleans became part of the kind of picture. And of course, you know, um, when I learned about the seniors, the most obvious kind of parallel for me were the quadrants of New Orleans and the lore around the quadrants of New Orleans really echoing the um, stories and histories of the seniors of, um, of, 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 of St. Louis and Goree. Um, and then Erzuli came into play. And, and so this is important, right? Like I don't actually really look at uh colonial Saint-Domingue or Haiti as sites like or places in the ways that I do um, New Orleans and Senegal. But I bring Ezzeli in because I was really struggling with the limits of the archive and how to kind of imagine free women of color from within diaspora. Because it's not as if like people haven't written about the mulatta or free women of color or the seniors or quadroons. And a lot of this work is really useful. And obviously I couldn't do my, my work without it. Um, but what I was kind of struck with was the ways in which um, people talked about the figure of the mulatta within a white imaginations, right? White colonial imaginations and as ways um, for um colonizers and slaveholders to really kind of buttress their ideas of white masculinity. Mm -hmm. And so I was really interested. I was like, but how do black people, basically I was like, how do black people imagine or understand um, free women of color, like with, from within, from within a framework of diaspora. And so that's where Ezuli came because I was like, this is an archive that is produced by black diasporic people and imaginations, right. In the ways that, um, travel narratives are not. Um, and, and so that's, that's how I came to kind of those three bases and then the three kind of key subjects in my text, the seniors, quadrants, and then here's a Yeah. And then, um, I mean, on the subject of colonial New Orleans, this is kind of a selfish question mm-hmm. because I just visited New Orleans last month. Yeah. But I was curious, why was New Orleans such a unique place for free women of color? Or or is that a leading question? Perhaps it wasn't. But what made it new, unique? Um, and it seems like so many of these compelling narratives tend to merge there in your text. So why was this? 
I mean, you know, I, th- I mean, New Orleans is a port city. It's, you know, the specific kind of history of New Orleans, right? The colonial history of New Orleans. And I think that that, especially within the U.S. landscape, right? So it's like the French settle it. Then the Spanish, like it's, you know, it kind of trades hands back and forth between the French and the Spanish. Um, and and each, you know, colonial government leaves like its imprint, including, including ideas about race, right? Which are really... Um, or I should say ideas about racial categorization, right? Racial mm-hmm. categorization and and um, whereas like the rest of the U.S. has like, a, you know, a bipartite racial categorization in terms of, you're, you know, you're either black or you're white. Um, and, um, and, you know, in terms of kind of organizing who is enslaved and who is free. And while you have free people of color in um in the U.S. under slavery, right? They're not, it's not, um, it's not this like hard racial category, the ways in which free people of color are for like the French and the Spanish. And so I think that that's, there's something about ports and that's, you know, the one thing in this, the book that I kind of had to drop really reluctantly and um, there's actually like a, um, I'm trying to think about like how to work it out and flush it out um, is really thinking about the geography of these places. Um, and here I'm, you know, totally indebted to um, Catherine McKittrick's work um, and thinking about black geographies, but thinking about like, you know, New Orleans as like this port, this major port city so that you have this constant influx of, um, of, you know, it's not just, it's not just like the French and the Spanish and the U S but then you also have the, um, you know, the refugees from the, um, you know, from the, um, from the Saint-Domingue, the Haitian Revolution, you have, um, as my book starts out with, you have um, uh, slave ships coming from um, the west coast of Africa, including Senegal, and carrying captives, but also sometimes carrying, you know, free women of color as passengers um, from Senegal. So I think that there's just, it's, it, there's something about the geography of New Orleans mm. um, and um, and also the ways in which, you know, Gwendolyn Midlow Hall writes about Africans in um, um, colonial Louisiana and she argues that, right, it's like the most kind of African space of the U.S. as well because of the dynamics of um, how the slave trade happens there and how slavery happens and, you know, which, which groups come to um, to New Orleans. And so... Yeah, it's just it's it's it, it's such a central space for thinking about blackness, for thinking about you know um, race and slavery and memory. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then I guess building on this, as you discuss kind of the difficulties inherent to defining these racial categories, I feel like your book also works with the term freedom in different ways. There are like multiple meanings to this term. So how did you use the term freedom, Um, especially given that I found some of the women you write about seem to be free and unfree at the same time in some ways? Yeah, and this is something that I really wanted to press on and um, I struggled with, right? Because I didn't want to understate the privilege that free and freed women of color held enslaved societies in terms of, you know, freer, you know, freedom of movement, um, freedom, you know, like um, more, um, 
you know, a greater likelihood of like having bodily autonomy, for example. And so I didn't want to overstate that, but I also did not want to lose sight. And I didn't want my reader to lose sight that, that, that these women existed in a spectrum between slavery and freedom and that their freedom was always tenuous and contingent. Um, and in fact, you know, the historical record shows us, um, across the board where free people of color, right. I mean, um, are kidnapped or, you know, um, or, uh, you know, otherwise like enslaved. Right. And so I want, I really wanted to kind of press on this notion of like, well, how, how do, how, and, and to raise the question really about like, how might we understand the women themselves to have experienced this, this, um, tenuous freedom. Um, and so that was, that was the tension I really wanted to hold on to that they were at once privileged and had agency in the way that enslaved women did not, that there's, there is an absolute distinction that's important to mark and note and analyze and think about. And the women that I examine, some of them had were formerly enslaved, right? All of them had relatives that were enslaved. All of them had a very precarious, a precarious freedom. And I wanted to, to foreground that in terms of thinking about what are the possibilities and limits of freedom for black subjects in this particular, in these particular moments that I looked at. Yeah. And I mean, I think the images you include in the book also speak to this. So the depictions of dress and clothing and headdress in particular as distinctive clothing for the particular group that you study. Could you say, could you say a little bit about why it's so significant, the clothing? Yeah. And so this is where the different contexts, right? The different geographic and national contexts are really important. So on the one hand, you have the seniors whose headdress is completely distinctive to them. And across the historical record, the understanding is that the seniors, this this is part of their cultural practice, right? This mm-hmm. is a proactive cultural practice and it is they are not required at any moment to wear the headdress. They don't have to wear the headdress to distinguish themselves from white women in the way that we see in the Americas, right? With, with, um, with, um, with the sumptuary, um, sumptuary laws, right? So in New Orleans and in, um, in, in Saint-Domingue, but I want to talk about, uh, you know, specifically in terms of thinking about the images I have, like in New Orleans, um, the Spanish in the late, um, in their colonial period, they passed what's called the Tignon Law. And basically, the problem is that you have free women of color, some of whom can pass as white, uh, but whether they can pass or white or not, are visibly like free and enjoying their freedom and and some are building wealth and displaying their wealth through their dress. And so the Spanish imposed a Chignon law to require free women of color to wear a head wrap to mark their racial status. 
um, and to link them to blackness and then by proxy to slavery. And so I think it's a really interesting tension between how the head wrap operates in, in Senegal and how it operates in the Americas. And then of course, what free women of color do in Americas, right, is then they just kind of embrace the head wrap and the distinctiveness of a head wrap and then show up in bright, beautiful, luxurious styles and head wraps. And that also, and also proactively connect themselves to blackness and black womanhood in ways that are at once subversive and, and kind of affirming, right. Of, of, of racial, of laws around race and, and freedom and visibility. Yeah. So then I guess, um, uh, a close to final question. Um, what role does ritual play among the women you examine and also in this study of diaspora? So women practicing perhaps voodoo ritual in New Orleans, for example, where does this theme fit in? I think that I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this because this is, this is what I was struggling with in the book is that on one hand, you know, I want to think about and explore and examine like what free women of how free women of color imagine themselves, how black diaspora communities have understood free women of color and, and interacted with them. And this is a really intimate question. And when I talk about intimacy, I'm talking about not, not just sexual intimacy and not always sexual intimacy, but you know, just the intimacy of friendship and, and, and family relationships and sacred practices and so the tension for me is wanting to examine that and think through its implications for both how we understand the women as historical subjects, but also contemporary possibilities of freedom, but also respect their right to privacy. And I know privacy is like a really complicated um, term, especially within kind of capitalist um, relationships, but, but to think about what's at stake in talking about these and how to talk about it in a way that um, I hope like remains respectful and even reverent of, of, of the women and, um, and ideas of ritual. And so, yeah, I really wanted to think about, um, and, and part of the way that it came into thinking about ritual is again, coming back to the geography of these spaces is that because they are slave ports, because they are ports, because they have, populations that and 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 societies that both reinforce kind of rigid hierarchies around race and nation and class but also press against those boundaries i was thinking about these spaces as or these places as, as liminal places right and if you think about like liminality um in the anthropological sense, right? That's all about kind of ritual and this 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 space be this space of transformation, um, and oftentimes initiation. And so that's where I got to thinking about okay, well, ritual uh, as a site of transformation, but also like as a as a a site of practice and rehearsal and and becoming. And coming back to really, again, trying to think about 
what are the ways that we can understand Black diasporic subjectivity as something that is positively defined and enacted as opposed to always kind of in reaction to events outside of one's control, right? In terms of like the slave trade and colonization. And so that's part of where I was thinking about ritual and, and thinking through the ways in which throughout the archive, right? The dominant archive, especially with these travelers narratives uh, by white French men in particular, and how they persistently document the private, like intimate spaces of free women of color. And so I wanted to kind of read against that documentation and see how can I see how the free women of color encounter those invasions and, and, and endeavor to resist those invasions of privacy, or at least note that these are invasions of privacy. Um, and also how do they like work to, to build and maintain kinship ties and communal ties in the face of these kinds of constant assaults on um, their most intimate relationships. And so that's where ritual for me, like, so that's where, so thinking about hairdressing and again, I'm building on and I'm drawing on the, you know, work from like so many scholars and, and historians of, um, and his name is, um, oh shoot, his name is escaping, his, his name is escaping me, but um, this work um, on um, dress in Jamaica and, um, oh, I can't believe his name is escaping me right now. But this book in particular was really helpful for me in terms of thinking about the head wrap, right? And the, the different ways that um, that enslaved and free women of color use the head wrap and dress to mark resistance, right? Stephanie Camp's work is really important there too. Um, and so I think that that's like, so, so yeah, I guess for me it comes down to that there's something really sacred about ritual and I wanted to talk about it in a way that respected and held that sacredness um, close. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your work does that. It's like the concept of ritual is so compelling throughout the whole work. That's why I asked about it. Um, And then I guess, so, I I mean, I think we should maybe wrap up our conversation and I'd like to do so by asking the traditional final question at New Books Network. Um, So what are you working on now? And and does it relate to some of these unanswered questions from, from your first book? Yes. And so, and if I could just quickly say it's Steve, Steve O. Buckridge. Okay, great. Um, I just wanted, that's the, the, the dress, the language of dress. But so what I'm working on now absolutely comes out of this first, this first book um, in terms of, because one of the things that kind of appeared late in my work on this book was really thinking about um, mothering practices um, of the seniors, especially. And so while I do talk about it to some extent in my book, um, this question of like, what does it mean to mother in diaspora is the question that I want to keep taking up, especially in a contemporary um, moment, like in relationship to 
basically what black people are facing mm-hmm. now, right. Mm-hmm. In terms of kind of the greater visibility, um, of assaults on black lives and particularly on black children and thinking about the role of the police. And so this project that I'm working on now is really looking at what I'm, what I'm doing is I'm looking both at 19th century and it is, and it's coming back to the U S it's coming back to my like, you know, Anglophone comfort zone, (laughs) um, at least for now, (laughs) we'll see where it takes me. But, um, so I'm looking at 19th century, 19th through contemporary African American literature, but specifically looking at, representations of enslaved motherhood in order to think through enslaved motherhood as really uh, what I've called in other places like ontological labor. It's like thinking about like, okay, what does it mean when there's no kind of interest in this by the state or society to basically keep your, you know, have have your child like enjoy freedom, right? And um, and and a life free of of assault and um, and threats to their life. And so and and this this project came to me again, thinking about in terms of mothering um, practices in enslaved motherhood, but also thinking about this contemporary moment is like how do black mothers talk to their children about the police, which are who are you know the police as like a direct kind of um, descendant of the slave patrols, and so. That's what I'm working on now is like thinking through representations of enslaved black motherhood, especially in terms of kind of like how do black mothers imagine and enact freedom for their children? How do they possibly kind of delve into or draw on ideas about motherhood and possibility outside, like from from African diasporic religious traditions and kind of like looking at those moments in 19th century texts as well. Um, and really thinking through like black motherhood is kind of a persistent s- engagement, if not state of fugitivity. Mm. So that's, that's where I'm. Lisa, working. that sounds like a really important project and also a great project. Um, so I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. So thank you again. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciated this opportunity. And yeah, no, I I just thank you. The pleasure has been all mine. Great. Looking forward to speaking to you again soon. Okay. Thanks, Tyler. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.